Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And it is sweet to be back. Uh, Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, This is the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a real focus on biotechnology and I guess on crop genetic improvement, animal genetic improvement, uh, new innovations that can help people in the planet. I'm Kevin Folta and uh, today we'll be talking about corn. Now, corn is a tremendous staple crop and has many other uses, Um, and today we have the opportunity to talk to an expert's expert in this field. So we'll go right away to today's interview with Dr. John Dobley. Today on Talking Biotech Podcast, it's really a pleasure to be able to talk to somebody about an important topic that has been in the suggestion box for months, and the topic is corn. Now, corn is a really important staple of the American diet, but also other diets all over the world. It's important for animal feed, for uh, ethanol production. The story of corn is a very intricate one and goes back a long way. And I'm here happy to talk to one of the experts in this, Dr. John Dobley from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, He joins us today. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dobley. Okay, thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, so I I guess... um, when we uh, start about talking about corn, what is this thing? Because it's not a one-size-fits-all um, description of what this crop is and the many different forms it takes. Could you fill us in on what that is? Well, yeah, corn is a cultivated plant species, and uh, it comes in a lot of different varieties, uh, just like dogs come in a lot of different breeds. And so we have sweet corn, then corn. We have corns that are made for uh cooking tortillas and so forth, and corns that are adapted or grown to produce animal feed. So there are a lot of different types of corn out there. And what is this thing called dent corn, and and, uh, what is that tortilla corn? So the dent corns are the kind most commonly grown in the central United States here in the Corn Belt, where I am. Uh, And the dent in the tip of the kernel, there's a little impression or dent in the tip of the kernel, 
that is formed because there are two types of starch in the kernel. There's a hard starch on the outside and a soft starch on the inside. And the collapsing of that soft starch on the inside produces a little dent in the uh, tip of the kernel. But that's the type of corn, the yellow dent corns that are grown here in the Midwest that uh, uh, produce most of the animal feed. Okay, and animal feed, but where else does the rest of corn end up kind of by proportion? If you, if you took everything, say, in the United States, how much goes to feed or fuel or actually end up in human food? Well, I'm not an agronomist. So I really can't answer that question on uh, how much. I think the vast majority of it goes into animal feed. Uh, another big proportion now goes into ethanol production, and only a very small amount is actually directly consumed by people in the form of, say, tortillas or sweet corn. Uh, and But corn's also used for a lot of other uh, products you're going to be familiar with. Uh, if you thicken your gravy with cornstarch, there's another usage. Uh, of course, it's used to make um, high fructose corn syrup, uh, sweeten some of your soft drinks. So it has a lot of uses, but I've... Um, uh, again, it's not my area, but I believe the bulk of the corn grown in the Midwest here and in the United States is used directly for animal feed. Okay, so let's jump over to your area, where, where really you are the world expert in this area. What, Where was it domesticated, and what did the original form look like? And, and maybe even why did people start to domesticate corn? Yeah, so corn is native to the New World, uh, so it was uh, grown as a crop, uh, Back around the uh, late uh, 1500s when Columbus uh, arrived in the New World, and it was grown at that point all the way from Canada down to southern Chile. So it had its origin in the New World. And if you go back uh, much further, about 10,000 years ago, uh, there was no corn. So there were only uh, people gathering wild plants. And one of the wild plants they gathered was called teosinte, uh, and it's the wild ancestor of corn. And they were gathering this to use as a food crop uh, in, not a crop, as a food plant uh, in southern Mexico. And in southern Mexico, maybe somewhere around 9,000 years ago, they began the domestication process that converted this wild plant, Teosinte, into our cultivated corn. And after that point, uh, after 9,000 years ago, the corn once domesticated was spread throughout the Americas, again, from Canada to Chile. Could you walk us through that process maybe a little bit botanically? Like, what does Teosinte look like? What are some of the qualities of the kernels or the plant? And how did humans change that? Yeah, so Teosinte is very different looking from corn. Um, and in particular, the the structure of the ear. Teosinte doesn't have an ear that looks anything like a corn ear. You're all familiar, most people are familiar with an ear of sweet corn. Uh, what that looks like it's got lots of rows of grain and it's got it's a uh, long you know it's about uh, a good size to hold in your hand and teosinte actually has a very very tiny ear maybe just about uh oh i don't know two three inches long and it only has around 10 kernels so the there's a huge size difference between teosinte and corn but even more than that in teosinte each of the kernels is sort of locked in a very hard stony case just like a walnut shell and so it can't be directly eaten it's got to be processed first whereas in corn the kernels are right on the outside of the ear so you can bite directly into an ear of sweet corn and uh, over time how did 
how else did it change? Or do we know any of the uh, critical events, let's say, in the domestication process where maybe an early farmer or early breeder um, would have selected a certain trait over the wild species to, or I should say, wild antecedents in order to accelerate or improve the crop? Yeah, we, we do know um, a bit about it genetically. For instance, I mentioned that in Tiasinte, there are these hard little cases that surround each kernel, and corn doesn't have that. Uh, so we've identified one of the genes that was responsible for uh, re- removing that casing, if you will. So the casing doesn't develop, and you just get the kernels right on the outside of the ear. So uh, one of the big steps in going from this wild teosinte into cultivated corn. So we know a few things like that. Another one of the uh, key differences uh, is teosinte, each seed separates from all the others by a process we call shattering, so that each individual seed can go off to a different location in the field and start a new uh, plant for the next season. But in corn, all the seeds remain attached to a single cob so they don't come off of the cob very easily. And we know uh, one of the genes that's involved in the loss of this ability to shatter so that all the seeds stay attached on the ear and then the ear stay attached on the plant. And what about uh, general plant architecture? Did, did it look exactly like a modern corn plant? Yeah, so that's uh, another big difference is that um, most people are familiar with a corn plant, um, although there's some differences among different variety of corns. The, the type of corn we grow here in the Midwest, it has a single stalk. So if you put a seed in the ground, you get one stalk, and on the side of that stalk, you get one or sometimes two ears. So you can think of it as a, a, a plant that has only one stalk. But teosinte produces lots of stalks from a single seed. So the plant branches right down at the ground, and then it also forms branches all the way up along the stalk. So all, as you move up the stalk, there are additional branches. And so there was a big change in the architecture of the plant from this highly branched form of teosinte to the unbranched form of corn. And we have some idea of the uh, genes involved in that as well and uh, that uh, were changed to get the single stock of corn as opposed to the many stocks of teosinte. In all of this, I, I love these kinds of discussions because one of the big uh, discussions we have both in the public and talking about genetic improvement of plants and on this podcast is what were the events or the traits that humans, you know, unknowingly uh, stumbled upon just because of natural variation and mutation? And what did they find value in? And uh, and then selected those genes into subsequent lines. And based upon everything we know from uh, lots of corn genome sequencing, how many uh, traits do you think, just if you had to you know, kind of spitball a number, how many traits do you think maybe were the critical differences between teosinte and modern corn? Yeah, I would say in terms of... Uh Critical differences, uh, one would be not to have the seeds shatter and fall on the ground, so that would be one of the key differences. Another would be to increase the number of seeds in each ear. Uh, Teosinte just has about 10 kernels in each ear, and corn, even primitive types of corn, will have uh, 100 to 200 uh, kernels in a single ear. The change in plant architecture, so Teosinte has 
dozens and dozens and dozens of small ears on the plant, very difficult to harvest. So change that so you get just one or two ears on the plant, much easier to harvest. And um, also that change to have the kernel be uh, naked on the exterior of the ear as opposed to locked up in those little casings. So if you could change all of that, you'd have um, uh, converted this teosinte into a primitive type of corn. Okay, really good. So we kind of have a, spent the first part of the podcast kind of framing what this creature is. What What is corn? What is its, uh, where did it come from in time and space? And when we come back on the other side of the break, I'd like to talk more about where, where it went during the industrialization period and how it got to where it got to today. Um, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. I'm Kevin Fulta, and we're speaking with Dr. John Dobley at the University of Wisconsin. We'll be back in just a moment. Greetings, Talking Biotech aficionados, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thanks to you. You've written great, wonderful reviews on iTunes, and it's quite a beacon to the podcast surfer. Shows your amazing support for this mofo of a science show. And special thanks to you who dared to accept my challenge and got that talking biotech tattoo. It's appreciated, but guess what? That tattoo lasts a really long time. It's my hope that someday, a few decades from now, we can look at your dermal commitment to a science podcast and ridicule you for defacing your flesh. Our hope is that your days in assisted living will use that tat as a conversation starter, reminding the elderly of the dark ages when science was shunned for flashy marketing and myth that placed fear over reason. However, with the support of so many listeners, we're moving innovation to application and helping people and planet along the way. So, tell a friend, write a review on iTunes, and most of all, share the beautiful science that we learn from the expert guests that kindly share their expertise here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. My name is Chelsea Boonstra, and welcome to the Boonstra Report, where we talk about all things agriculture. Over the past few weeks, you can hear about the impact poor weather conditions have on harvest period and the quality of grain harvested. With the crop off the field and into the bin, marketing now becomes the focus of many producers. Here, I'm going to tell you about some information to cope with downgraded crops. When marketing poor quality grain, be prepared and don't panic especially right at harvest time. Know the quality and find a buyer who will offer the best value. Take good samples. Without their samples, it is tough to know what is actually in the bin. Communicate with the buyer if already some of this year's crop is already contracted. Unless cash flow is an issue on the farm, being patient could be the best action to take as new markets may arise for poor quality grain. Thanks for listening, and be sure to follow me at Forever Farm Girl on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and WordPress.com. Thanks.
So we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast, and today we're talking about corn. And we're talking with the expert's expert on corn, Dr. John Dobley of the University of Wisconsin up in Madison, Wisconsin. And I guess we left off with uh, kind of the early history of corn, but let's talk about its modern-day roots. Um, When Columbus landed in the New World, they found corn. And could you tell us a little bit more about what that was like or maybe what was happening at the time with respect to the propagation of corn? Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting is that the Native American peoples had adapted corn to just the tremendous diversity of environments. It was grown up at 3,000 meters above sea level in the Andes Mountains. It was grown in the deserts of the uh, southwestern United States. It was grown in the Amazon forest. It was grown in the coastal regions of South America. Uh, It was grown in the Midwest, and it was grown all the way up into Canada. And so there was a tremendous amount of diversity at that point uh, that the the colonists uh, coming from Europe got to work with to establish uh, their own crop. You want me to continue with that story? Oh, sure. Take a few minutes here. Part of the, what happened at that point, too, though, is that the Spanish were moving corn around, and they brought corn from Mexico into the southern United States. And the uh, colonist farmers of the southern United States were growing um, this sort of corn that came from Mexico. Other farmers uh, up in the New England area were growing a type of corn called um, flint corn that they got from the native peoples of the New England area. And over time, the two got uh, closer and closer as the flint corns moved south and the the Spanish corn, which was a type of dent corn, moved north. And then finally, somewhere in Virginia, the two got mixed up and they crossed with each other. And that produced a really um, strong type of corn with a high yield and good uh, performance overall. And that type of corn there in Virginia, this mix of the northern flints and what were called southern dents brought by the Spanish from Mexico, uh, moved out into the Midwestern region when the, uh, the European peoples uh, expanded their farms into the Midwest. And these became known as the Midwest dent corns. And so the Midwest dent corns, following through that history, are the foundation of modern corn that we grow here today. And uh, just kind of a, put a time stamp on that. When, What kind of uh, time frame was that happening generally? So the, um, you know, the early p- part where uh, the coastal farmers along the East Coast, uh, you know, that would be back in the 1600s or so, and then it was in the 1800s that the uh, Corn Belt uh, uh, Midwestern Dent Uh, types got established out here. You know, I could take it one further step, which is to say, at that point, there were different families, each producing uh, their own types of corn, and some families got really good at it, and they they made and sold uh, uh, varieties of corn to other farmers. Krugs was one of the varieties that was uh, sold. Lancaster was another. And uh, so farmers might buy it from a seed company. And in the early 1900s, they've discovered that uh, you could inbreed corn and make an inbred line, and you could cross two inbreds, one to the other, 
and produce a hybrid that gave the best possible yield at the time. And so it's around the 1930s that hybrid corn first got established in the Midwest. That, so let, let's take a step back just really quickly for the audience who maybe doesn't know about inbreds. But if we take most plants and we breed them against themselves, taking pollen from the uh, tassel and putting it on the silks, you create varieties that are increasingly less vigorous with every generation. And th- these are inbreds, and, but they're more genetically uniform. And the problem is, is that they're genetically uniform, which really decreases their vigor. Yet that uniformity is really important because now when you take two things that are genetically uniform and cross them together, you have this huge amount of variation that sometimes has very positive effects in the generation of the hybrid. And, uh, and so this is where this birth of hybrid corn and, and maybe the, the, the current seeds of, um, of big ag companies really kind of started. But what happened right after that? I mean, how did, uh, how did hybrid corn change the way that American farmers grew corn? Yeah, let me add one thing to what you said about creating these inbreds from the founding populations is when you do that self-pollination generation after generation, one of the things you do is you expose genes that have a bad effect on the plant. And so you get some of the inbreds that are very unhealthy, and you eliminate those. And those those unhealthy inbreds have the bad genes. And the inbred that you actually settle on and keep is the one where you've rooted out most of the bad genes. So it's a pretty healthy plant, although it's inbred. So one of, the, one of the important things in inbreeding is to get rid of the bad genes. Um, and so at this point, then, the uh, companies got this idea that they could create these inbreds, cross them one to another in particular ways to produce hybrids, which uh, had the uh, highest possible yield for corn of the time. And what that changed is that farmers now were – to get the highest yields on their cornfields would do better to buy hybrid seed from the company than to produce their own seed year after year after year. Because what a farmer was doing before then, or might have done before then, is grow a crop this year, just set aside a bit of the seed and use it for your crop the next year and do that year after year after year. Uh, So you didn't have to go to a company and buy seed. But with the hybrid seed, You know, you had to go to the company to buy it because the process of producing inbreds and making hybrid seed was too complicated for an individual farmer to do on their own. And it's it's really an important point because uh, even in modern day discussions, when we talk about uh, proprietary, you know, genetics and that kind of thing, one of the big arguments is, well, it's isn't it unethical to force uh, farmers to repurchase seeds every year? And it's something that uh, companies have been doing using hybrid seed for a long time. And, um, and, and, and really, is the, what is the central driver? Is it really just a question of better yields? Or what other traits are important that come along with hybrids? Yeah, well, again, I'm not a modern agronomist or expert in that area. But certainly yield is the, uh, uh, the end game in, uh, you know, in production. If you... Uh, crop is uh, susceptible to disease, if it's susceptible to insect damage, if the plants are knocked over by the wind, all of that lowers your yield. And so these hybrids were very strong and gave a good yield. Of course, no one is forced to buy the 
uh, hybrid seed. They could continue to grow any seed they want. It's just that you'd end up going out of business because your neighbor who's using the hybrid seed is going to get a higher yield and so will uh, be economically more successful. And uh, you'll have a hard time staying in business if you're growing an inferior type of corn. Yeah, and that's an important point. And and the other thought, too, is that if you do opt to save your seeds, and this is, again, just kind of the audience that maybe doesn't think about genetics all the time, is you take this hybrid that now has a contribution from one parental inbred and another contribution from a different parental inbred, and now what you see are the assortment and the mixing of those genes in the subsequent generation if the hybrid self-fertilizes that give you um, some things that will look like one parent, one unimproved inbred parent, um, another one that looks like an um, inbred parent, and then this huge range in between. So you lose all the uniformity of that hybrid. That's, yeah, you would lose uniformity, but and you would also begin to expose through that inbreeding. Uh, when you take seed from the hybrid cross one another, you're going to begin to expose some bad genes again. So the overall yield will drop as well. So if we go back to your research and, and your interest in thinking about the uh, genetics and evolution of, of corn, what are some of the other interesting stories that maybe we didn't talk about so far? Well, one of the uh, stories I've always found interesting is how the uh, native peoples of the southwestern United States adapted corn to the desert, to grow in the desert. Uh, it's a very dry area. There's not much moisture. And one of the differences uh, they did in their farming there is the plants are spread far apart from one another, where in a modern cornfield, there could be plants are just inches from one another. Uh, in the southwest, where the native peoples grew it, the, the uh, different plants could be about three feet from one another. And the reason for that was each plant needed more soil to get, extract moisture out of to live. And so the farming was very different in that regard. Another difference is that if you think about the desert, where's the moisture in the soil? It's going to be deeper down. The top layers of the soil are going to get baked in the sun, all the moisture baked out of them. So enough moisture for the plant to the seed to uh, soak up enough the water to actually germinate can only be found deep in the soil. So they produced a variety of corn where you can put the seed 12 inches into the ground, have it germinate, and then it will grow up through that 12 inches and start to plant. So they really did adapt corn to that uh, very harsh environment uh, by uh, some specific tricks on how they grow it. That's that's really fascinating, and it's really a testament to the uh, indigenous peoples that would, in the interest of feeding themselves, would innovate the idea of uh, of, of both the agri- the agronomic side, but also the breeding side, and the, the maybe inadvertent selection of genetics that performed in the environment they were selecting for. It's really, really um, uh, you know fascinating. Any other interesting stories along that line? Well, something else your listeners may not be familiar with is uh, just how much uh, variation there is in what the plant looks like. If you go to the sort of cloud forest mountains of Guatemala, the plants there, corn plant, can be 24 feet tall, and the ear of the plant can be 12 feet above the ground. So the plants are just absolutely monstrous compared to uh, corn that we grow here in the Midwest. And... Um, it's so big, you can imagine it really needs a strong stalk to uh, 
to stay upright, not fall over. And indeed, the corn there does have a very strong stock. And it's so strong they can use them, uh, you know, as a building material or fence post. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. So, that, you know, th- those are the kind of the stories I just I just adore because it's so interesting to see how these things, once they radiated from their center of, of evolutionary origin, uh, how uh, how humans and the movement in the different places maybe exposed genes that then were selected to solve certain problems, like making fence posts. <laughs> For me, uh, one of the key things to remember about this in this story is the tremendous talent of Native American peoples as plant breeders to create corn out of Teosinte and adapt it to such a broad range of environment. And an interesting um, point that goes beyond Uh, corn is that if you think about all the most important plants in the world that feed our species, corn, wheat, rice, barley, rye, a few others, uh, all of those were brought into domestication about 10,000 years ago by uh, ancient peoples. And modern plant breeders are sort of, uh, you know, making small changes, but the fundamental process of domesticating crop plants was done by these ancient uh, plant breeders and they just did a tremendous job and that it's something that i always like to emphasize is that you know we kind of uh picked up doing the fine tuning on something that was already given to us and how many opportunities do we have in front of us today i mean you go back to like vavilov where they talked about where the centers, the, the major breeding advances were made around uh, where people lived because that's obviously you were domesticating what was local. But what opportunities do we have in the fields around us now that we could, in theory, potentially change into something that would be useful for humans? And even more importantly, what are we losing as human populations expand and as forests give way to increase uh, either cropland or we uh, lose species for other reasons? Um, it, it's, it's, to me, that's really fascinating that what opportunities are we missing to maybe come up with what could be one of the most important future crops? Yeah, I, I, the opportunities in some sense are almost limitless, and it's uh, what the, is the key ingredient is our, the human imagination. So if we have an idea and we go with it, we can do uh, a lot. That's awesome. I, I, one last question might be, if you didn't study what you have studied all these years, what would you take on as an interesting project? Well, you know, for me personally, my original uh, academic goal was to go into human genetics, and um, I wouldn't uh, mind to have gone that path as well, but the way my life worked, I ended up getting into plants, and it's been uh, just fine that greatly enjoyed it, but uh, I think human genetics, for me, uh, still holds a particular fascination. <laughs> Would you study ear size? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you actually could do that today. Um, probably something more related to um, genetic susceptibilities for diseases and, uh, you know, something with a medical relevance. No, I, I, I share your interest. I think it's really cool. To, you know, it's hard to crack open an issue of science and not fall in love with what's happening everywhere these days. So totally appreciate that sentiment. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today. This is uh, uh, Dr. John Dobley from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the Department of Genetics. And uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. 
Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.